Hi, I'm Whitney Walker, and this is the Women Waken podcast, where I interview guests who are in the field of healing and spiritual work using their unique gifts of the divine feminine. We talk all about these amazing gifts that these particular guests have and how they're bringing them forth in the world. On this episode, I welcome an incredible force for creative change, Adriana Marchion. Adriana is a filmmaker, a teacher, speaker, a movement educator, an expressive arts therapist, and a poet. And really just an amazing all-around woman who has channeled her energy from addiction, grief, and trauma into creative expression and healing as a means to help others to find their own unique, incredible gifts and move through challenges and devastations in their life to produce something beautiful through art and to really use art as a means of healing and embracing and bringing forth who we are in a powerful, constructive, and inspirational way. So take a listen, enjoy, and here's my guest. Hi, Adriana. Welcome to the Women Waken podcast. Hey, Whitney. So happy to be here. So wonderful to have you and so excited to talk about you and your work and some of your current projects, which I am so excited about and that are so amazing. Adriana, you and I connected, I think about a year ago, and we're kind of drawn to one another because your work is really based a lot in a creative approach to healing, specifically with addiction recovery and with trauma, which is a huge part of my work as a therapist. So I was really excited that you are, because you're an expressive arts therapist. So you do a lot of that channeling of that powerful energy into expressive arts, which is beautiful, which is such a fantastic thing. Thank you. Thank you. I do love my work. I feel very blessed to be able to do what I do and also have the recovery angle, as you said, that we get to share that. And that's something that is a very intense at times, but also such a vital uh, place to work with people. Absolutely. It's, it, yeah, it's very strong, a very powerful thing. And you're actually um, my first guest who shares a history of, of, of addiction recovery and sobriety. So that's exciting. I mean, it's one of my favorite topics and things to discuss. And I just, I haven't come across a guest yet. And I was kind of trying to seek someone out and thinking, you know, who could I talk to to really get into this? And then I recognize that there you are. Yeah. such a strong bond around recovery. Right. And I mean, I definitely have a lot of other people I can send you to as well, because there's, as you know, a ton of people out there that are speaking about recovery and wanted to want to share their experience, strength and hope. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's so wonderful. It's so important to to talk about. And, you know, I think both you and I both know that a big part of healing and moving into recovery is speaking your truth, speaking your story, and being able to do it freely without feeling like there's, you know, because shame is such a big part of any addiction. And the things that happen within addiction is is there's just a lot. There's there's trauma, there's shame, there's grief, there's loss, there's so much. So the more that we're able to see it as almost an asset, because then it becomes this creative force, right? Where it's like, I can't get rid of what happened to me or what I did. We can't, we can't do that, but we can channel it in a different way so that it's for a greater good, a positive force. Exactly. Exactly. You said that so well. And you're doing that. You're doing that. Yeah. Um, so can you can you tell us about kind of give us a, a snapshot of your work right now, your life, and definitely share about this new f- documentary film that you've created that is just magnificent. And I get to see soon at the festival that you're mm-hmm. having. Yeah, yeah. Well, got a snapshot of my work right now. I mean, it's it's multi-layered, right? I'm like this morning I just saw a client. So I work with I work with clients um about two and a half days a week, I'm seeing people one-on-one and I'm, I operate as a, as a arts therapist, as a um, somatic, also kind of body-based therapist. I help people with stress and mindfulness in addition to creative work and, and also a creative coach. Like I do a lot of supervision and coaching with people and working with people with addiction, grief, and trauma. And just in general, I work with a lot of creatives, a lot of people who really want to have somebody that understands both 
like the mental health, emotional support, and also how do they thrive in their creative lives. So that's my angle. Um, and then I teach, like tomorrow I'm doing a workshop at, uh, I'm teaching, a, it's like a visioning workshop for uh, people for the new year with expressive arts and um, and I'm working on film and doing my own art at the same time. So it's a grand juggling act, shall we say. <laughs> a lot, a lot happening. So, yeah. And how long have you been juggling these, these various outlets and offerings? Well, I guess it's, I mean, ever since I started in my career doing this work, I mean, I, I, my background is in art and photography, mixed media, and I got my BA uh, in, in studio art. And so I've been, I mean, originally I was just going to be an artist. I was like, I'm going to be an artist and this is going to be my, my life. And I had day jobs like secretary. Remember secretary jobs? <laughs> That's not even a term people use anymore. I was a secretary. I, know, funny. I just think that was the greatest job ever. My dad's a doctor and I, you remember take your daughter to work day? Yeah, sure. And yeah. he came in and I, I thought his secretary was the coolest thing ever. I was like, you just get to answer phones and take notes. And it just, oh my gosh, I wanted, I thought it was the best. <laughs> I know. I was like typing. I was like, I did transcription and, you know, to learn how to type really fast and did temp jobs. And so a lot yeah. of those kind of jobs. Well, it's, a great, it's a great option. How, when was that? Was that back in like early days and like, you know, before college, during college? Like when did you first know you wanted to pursue this, this life as an artist? Uh, I think it definitely started in college. So, um, it's well, it started before that I was doing photography classes in high school and I, I was not really into art per se. Like I never thought about it, that it was viable for me, um, in high school. But when I got into college and I already had this love of photography and I started doing different things, like I had odd jobs, um, doing photography like in the dark room of the local of the school newspaper and I did stuff for the art classes I would take pictures of slides and and um, I just I guess the art classes really were resonating with me the most like I felt I felt uh, like oh yeah this is this is where my excitement is and so I my parents were like no not art <laughs> not art. I'm like, Oh, well, uh, and I just pushed full force into it. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, it was really clear that it's where I wanted to go at the time, but I just didn't know how to make a viable living at it. So I always kind of had the day jobs and, and did it on the side. Um, yeah. So. And then you're also a, a movement educator, which is, is dance, right? It's, it's, it's yeah. dance as therapeutic dance as an outlet for yeah and energy and expression and did you dance since early on in life since back then were you also doing that no not at all <laughs> no dancing um I mean sure like there was a little bit of like shaking it right so in college and loved going to parties and doing the going to the clubs and loved I was a big music fan growing up huge music fan I grew up in Cleveland Ohio basically I was born in DC and we moved around a lot as a kid and um but but a lot of my formative years were in Cleveland Ohio which is a huge music town right there's not a whole lot there but there's a lot of music and all the bands would come through Cleveland and so was was, this, isn't that where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is Yes, yeah. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, yeah, <laughs> which didn't didn't happen until I left Cleveland. But when I went back and visited, I was like, this is cool. Um, it's very, uh, it just, it's, it has this, it just has this vibe of, and kind of edgy vibe. And there's all these hidden and wonderful places to go see music. And so that was a big thing growing up. So I love to go and some music and, and just groove as a kid. And we saw all the 80s bands and just we would dress up crazy. So I, I always had a, I think there was always this creative streak and I had creative friends. Um, but dancing actually didn't arrive until recovery when I found my body, <laughs> basically when I dropped into my body and started doing a lot more healing because I think I was just walking around like a, I was just a head on a body, but not really, it didn't really register who I was fully. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It takes a long time to relearn or to learn for the first time your connection with your body and your relationship with it. Yes. You know, I remember when I, when I first got sober, I had to, I had a pretty rough detox. I had to go in and see a psychiatrist and, you know, I was sitting there just miserable with my arms folded and didn't want to hear anything he had to say. And he asked me, 
you know, he said, well, what's your, what's your relationship with your body? It does, or he said something like, it doesn't sound like you have a very good relationship with your body. Cause I was kind of sharing my history. I have a history of eating disorder as well as addiction. And, and I thought like, what does that mean? My relationship with my body? Like what I don't, I don't have a, you don't need a relationship with your body. It's just there. And it's, it's that kind of thinking that makes us so disconnected, you know, because for years when you're in an addiction, you're treating your body like a garbage can and have no consideration for it or what you're putting into it or doing to it. So yeah, it's, it's, and I'm a dancer as well. So it's, it's a beautiful way to get back into your body and notice that you do have a body that it's there and it's, it's wanting to, to move and to be expressed and to be connected with you, to be heard and seen. And that can just be so hard because the problem is that, um, our relationship with our body can be kind of inconvenient when we want to do things that are self-destructive. <laughs> Very true. Very true. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to override the body. I mean, I think a lot of addiction is that it's, it's about overriding the body and, and um, trying to, to escape in some way or, you know, pretend like avoidance is such a big part of it. Denial. And um, so how to register like, Oh, I have needs. I have, I'm hungry. I'm tired. I mean, that's why there's that big thing of halt and 12 step, which is hungry, angry, lonely, tired, which is, Ah. you know, you pause and learn how to do those basic things for yourself. Absolutely. Listening to your body's needs, recognizing that you can't just keep plowing through and doing exactly what you want to do, but the halt helps because you literally have to halt and say, okay, what's going on here? And like you said, is, does my body need more rest? And I like, does it need something to eat? Does it just really that connection? Mm. So it's, it's wonderful that you found that through, through dance. When, when was it about you? Would you want to share a little bit about your story about kind of yeah. when did addiction occur for you? And when did you kind of move out of it and go into recovery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I talk about it. I mean, I, I feel like this is always where it goes when I'm on a podcast or an interview, right? Is, is, because it's so much a part of the story for me. It's, Ah. and I think for many of us, right, we, we go through our own journey first, we have our own crises first, and then especially in the helping profession. uh, And, and then we learn, okay, so now my experience can support others. So that, that's definitely how it went for me. I mean, I, I, I drank, mainly I was an, I was a, I was a drinker, you know, I did, I dabbled in, uh, weed and now they call it at the time I guess it was what do we call it back then I guess it was pot or you know uh marijuana but I dabbled in it but I hated it it would always make me feel insane like I would hallucinate whenever I would smoke it was just I had a very weird relationship and I think I think it's because I have a very very sensitive system so alcohol was it was the perfect combination of okay, I'm going to calm down that anxiety that's always there for me, like take the edge off. Um, but it also would help lift me out of depression or a feeling of melancholy. It just, it had this, it was this elixir for me that that was double. It would just do do the right things for the right moment. And I I grew up Catholic and very Roman Catholic. So I'm, I'm uh, on my dad's side, uh, Italian American. And so I, I had a certain, you know, this is the right way to, to, you have to be the good girl and all that. And I think I felt pretty, pretty trapped on some level in, in the way, even though my parents were very liberal and there was a lot of, I don't know, they, they were free. They were free folks on some level, but then there was also this feeling of, I, I think I always wanted to break out. And so alcohol gave me that opportunity to feel more uh, just uncensored. It could be uncensored and I could... Uh-huh. I could play and I was very promiscuous and I just, it just pushed me into realms and pushed me into environments I wouldn't have gone before. But I I think it also was definitely a a regulator. So it helped me, it helped me manage all the inside uh, stress that I was feeling. And I was prone to, like I said, depression and and definitely anxiety. So um, yeah, it was, I was also connected to my art Right. I mean, that. When you were using? Yeah. Yeah. It's just for me, it was this whole identity that all of a sudden here I am. I'm studying art. I'm making, I'm taking pictures. I'm 
um, smoking cigarette. I wasn't a big smoker, but it just felt like it was almost this cool, like I'm staring, smoking cigarettes, rolling, rolling, you know, doing the rolling paper and I'm hanging out and with my friends and staying up late drinking and, you know, party and, and I would sometimes smoke in the dark room. And I just felt like it was creating this environment and this part, you know, this part of me got to come out and really, um, feel, yeah, just feel different in a positive you feel way. Cool. You feel yeah. like you're, you're doing, you're into this stuff and you're in your element and you're very fancy <laughs> and, you know, it can be, you know, there, there's so much, um, allusion to that, that time. It, it's such, there's so, I find that in addiction, so there's things that masquerade as different things. Like I think of, you know, before when you're talking about freedom, it's so ironic that when you first start using, there's a sense of freedom. It's like, finally, I feel like me. I feel like I can come out of my shell. I feel like I can talk. And I imagine the most challenging thing is for artists, because you feel like I found my elixir, like this brings out, I can go for hours and just get so much creative art out there when I'm, you know, using and, but it is a masquerade because eventually the illusion goes away because the thing that first frees you then has a hold on you because then you're pulled into these, you know, this addiction to these substances. Um, and then the same thing where at first you feel kind of cool, like in this, like I had this whole thing going on. I, I, you know, I'm sophisticated. I smoke and I use, and I'm, you know, artistic. And then you recognize that it's, it's all kind of borrowed time. If that's the right word, like it's, it yeah. doesn't really belong to you. Cause you're sort of it's synthetic. You're using something to achieve that state. And that's the, I think that's one of the scariest parts of addiction is the first time you recognize that where it's like, um, I need this, <laughs> right? Like I can't be without this, you yeah. know, and that's, that's jarring. And, um, you know, it's kind of like that monkey on your back where you're like, Oh, something's going to keep coming back and reminding me that this isn't just me. This is a dependency that's being developed. And it's yeah. Yeah. It took me a long time to, I mean, what I'm saying, it took me a long time to get there and it didn't really because I got sober young, but, but I didn't have any idea that it was a problem. I mean, I really didn't, I didn't have any orientation to it. I just felt like this is what everyone's doing around me and it's helping me. And, um, I always thought other things were the problem, you know, but the drinking didn't seem to be like, well, I'm not that out of control. And, um, you know, maybe I throw up sometimes or I get a lot of hands sometimes or I wake up hungover and, you know, no big deal. And um, seemed like overall I was managing my life until I started having, I started having panic attacks. I started having, I had, I started having all these things go on and, um, and I just, I just kept pushing it down, you know, until, I mean, the first time I, I like that you say that, like the first time that I realized it, I think I had moved to San Francisco and um, where my artist's career was going to take off, of course, <laughs> everything's going to happen now. And, uh, and living in that, in that sort of future, like, well, now this is going to do it or that, that, um, what's it called? Like geographics, right. When you jump yeah. around, so yeah. you move uh, this place will do it. This relationship will do it. This opportunity is going to do it. And, oh. uh, and I, I moved here into the mission, uh, district of San Francisco, which is, um, at the time, I mean, that was back in 1992. I guess I moved here in 1992. And the Mission District was, I mean, mainly just a Latin, you know, a Latin American uh, community, right? A lot of people from Mexico. And uh, it was actually not a very safe neighborhood at the time either, especially for um, a young, probably white woman, <laughs> a little moving around with a lot of uh, naivete. Uh, but I moved right into the heart of the mission and my roommate was, one of my roommates was sober. And that was kind of the first time. And he actually, I remember there was a moment when I had had this temp job. I left early. I was having all this anxiety. I came home and I was, I was standing in the hallway drinking a beer. It was probably like three in the morning, three in the afternoon or something. And, and he walked by me and I said, I really need this. And he just looked at me. He's like, yeah, of course you do. And he just kept walking and I felt kind of embarrassed, but I was like, oh, all right. I felt kind of embarrassed, but it kind of, it sort of jolted me into that, you know, that I had responded, like, I need this. And, and it had gotten to the point where I started really having consequences that led to my recovery. You know, so, yeah. yeah. And that was at, you said 23 when you were, 
I was, yeah, 23 when I moved here and I got sober at 24 when I was 24. Oh, wow. So it escalated pretty quickly in that year. But I guess San Francisco will do that in that kind of lifestyle where, you know, when you can, when your lifestyle is conducive to using and drinking when, when you want, it can quickly get out of hand into a, a dark place. Where, where did you, what was the point for you that you recognized that this wasn't something that was going to work for you? Well, I, I, part of what had happened, I'll just sort of make it brief because, um, there's a lot to it, but the base of one of my moments of clarity, uh, was, I think that was one of them, what I just shared, but also, um, the, the Rodney King riots were happening down in Los Angeles. And, um, and I already was feeling some culture shock. I mean, I had lived in Ohio and then I lived in Minneapolis for a short time and then moved here. I had some friends here and, um, and I was just trying to get my bearings overall. And then, um, the Rodney King riots were happening down in LA and I had been out to friends and I had been drinking and I drove home after curfew because there was a curfew at the time. Like they, and, and it filtered up to San Francisco and I ended up uh, getting assaulted right in front of my doorstep. Um, and I had, they stole my bicycle. Luckily they didn't steal my camera, which was in my backpack. Uh, and they, and I got beat up pretty, pretty badly, not like, you know, not enough to go to the hospital badly, but a badly to be really shook up. And so that to me was, I I thought I was going to die and I was, you know, I couldn't, part of why it happened is because I was drunk and I couldn't get my key in the door and, you know, all of the, like, it was a whole combination of perfect storm. And so I started having a lot of post-traumatic stress symptoms from that. And I um, was working at this art gallery with these um, two women that ran the gallery, and they they really encouraged me to to go and get some help. And so I started seeing a low fee therapist at the time. Um, actually, it's like the place that I went is like right around the corner from where I live now. Uh, and that woman, um, she was she was a she was into. Buddhism. She was studying a lot of meditation and she had, she was very mature. I was really lucky to get like a very, she was an intern, but she was very mature. And she, she just helped me look at my alcoholism. Uh, it took a while. She wore me down over a year's time and I was doing control drinking and this and that and trying to manage it. And, um, and, and she helped me to finally go to my first 12 step meeting. So that, you know, that's part of what got me into recovery and then also a good friend who was a drug drug and alcohol counselor at the time um that she also helped me a lot too so that was kind of how it how it happened how I got here yeah yeah it's it's um I kind of did the same process of I I got into therapy while I was still using and it was for me I was I was pretty resistant to stop. I mean, towards the end, I recognized I had to, I got addicted to pills in addition to alcohol and that really just makes things go South really quickly. So I was pretty, I was so scared by how dependent I'd become on them that I just wanted out. And so then I was more willing to listen, but until then I did the same bargaining. And I remember my therapist telling me once, cause I would come to her with all these stories about kind of what you said, like there was promiscuity, there was bad decisions, there was drunk driving, there was, you know, just unfortunate events that kept occurring. And I would always try to play it off. Cause you know, I, I too was in my, through my twenties when my drinking was at its heaviest and using and it, 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 there's a lot of it that just, just feels like this is, you know, just, it comes, it's par for the course. Like you're in your twenties. Of course, you're going to be, if you can drink a beer at three, you're going to do it. And if you're going to go, you know, I, I used to black out a lot and I was like, well, that's just what we do. You know, I, I mean, I had, you know, friends in college and afterwards where, you know, the next morning we kind of share our stories about like, Oh, like who blacked out, who didn't, who can like share, you know, what actually happened last night. And it, we laugh about it. You know, you don't, you it really gets normalized in those years, I think, to just to have problematic drinking. And, I, and that's why it becomes such a personal decision because we're the only ones that can decide how we feel about it. And if we, we feel that something needs to change, you know, yeah. because, and I think it's different than, because, so, you know, obviously we've both been in the room. So we know that some people's life literally tanks. I mean, they, and they have people around them. They, sometimes they don't have a choice they're put into, you know, but it's different when your life is just not working and, but it's working just enough that you could keep going and keep using. But for me, and it sounds like for you, there was something inside that said, I don't think I could be the person I want to be if I keep doing this. 
if I yeah. keep losing. Because to me, some of the biggest things were a lack of respect. I couldn't respect myself when I drank. Um, I, and I couldn't really be the, the person that I want to be, which is, which is thoughtful and, you know, considerate and responsible. Um, you know, so I couldn't, I couldn't respect myself. And also I couldn't trust myself. I think those were the two biggest things is it's, it's scary when, you know, cause I'm sure you did this too, but with like controlled drinking, when you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to black out anymore. I'm not going to go home with anybody anymore. I'm not going to have more than three drinks on these nights. And I would break every rule every time. And I'd wake up the next morning. I'm like, Oh, dang it. I did it again. So I lost trust and respect. And that really scared me. And that was enough for me to finally say, you know, I think I need to break up with these substances as much as I've tried to have a relationship with them. And it it very much, I say often, you know, addiction is like a toxic relationship where, and, and I, and then I tell people this who are in recovery that I think it's important to not just, you know, condemn the whole experience, but you have to acknowledge that when you start, when you get sober, when you recovered, it's a loss. You were saying bye to something that served you in some way and that you did have a relationship with. Again, just like a toxic relationship, anyone who's had to get out of an unhealthy relationship knows that it's not just like, oh good, that's over. It hurts. Like there's pain. There was connection that was created. There was deep feelings that were involved. Even if it, and, and it's almost worse because then you have to wrap your mind around, you know, oh man, a lot of that was just manipulation and really contorted you know, views and perspectives on what I thought was a good thing. And the same goes with with addiction. At at some point, it feels like a good thing, just like you shared earlier, where at first you're like, great, I found my juice. I found my flow. I found my thing that works for me, that makes me feel good. And having to let that go is a true, there's a grieving process involved. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and I also, there's, there's such a different dynamic getting, to me, getting into recovery younger. And um, at the time, I mean, I just felt also like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe this is just, maybe it's really not a problem. Maybe I'm just young and I've just been playing around and, and uh, it's not really, um, yeah, maybe I'm not an alcoholic or et cetera, et cetera. Maybe I'm not, um, maybe this isn't really an addiction. And so I really struggled at the beginning to kind of own that or really allow myself to fully, move into the process of recovery, even though I started getting help and going to meetings and those kind of things. Um, but I had been fired from a job. I, I mean, there's so many things that happened because of my drinking. I mean, my relationships to, to intimate relationships were really just, it was, they were just such a mess and I couldn't figure out how to make a living. I was directionless. I was really, I mean, there was so much soul loss for me. I think ultimately, I mean, I, I can vividly remember I was also, I was doing martial arts. That's another thing I think that helped me get into recovery that I forget sometimes because the, when I was assaulted, you know, I was like, I got to do something. I got to feel safer. I got to feel safer in the world. This is not okay. What happened? I needed to fight back somehow. And so I started doing martial arts and I'm really, you know, sometimes impressed that I was able to do that for myself at the time. And my teacher really, um, he was wonderful. And, and I started meditating through that process. And I think all of that, it just started tipping the scales because I remember walking in the lower hate where I was living at the time and was doing this controlled drinking and really not, you know, drinking that much, but feeling on the edge. And I felt so depressed. I mean, I really like drinking was so much better than not drinking, even though drinking wasn't working for me anymore. It would almost make me feel worse. But I, I just remember that feeling of, of soul loss. Like, and, and I think I had just been fired from this job I was working at partly because of my drinking. And, um, and it just felt like such a emptiness inside. And I was done. I was really done. And so I, I'm grateful, right? Because I got that rebirth at, at like you too, at a really young age and um, got to start my life. I mean, it took a while to get moving. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you're so, like we said, you're so disconnected, both from your body. But as you described, you know, it is sort of this, 
you know, your this soul loss and which is a whole thing. Like the energy of, of your soul is, you know, it, it has like a higher vibration, lower vibration. And, and also it there's, you know, people say that your soul can kind of leave your body if you're, if you're really treating it poorly and they call it actually this, the silver cord, I think is the term where it's that your, your soul never leaves you entirely, but it will kind of like drift away. Like, kind of like I'm getting out of here if you're toxic and unhealthy and all these things. And so it can, you know, kind of move out of your body and I, and that's how it feels. You know, I mean, I think anyone can relate who's had like a heavy night of drinking and the next day you wake up and you just feel this God awful, both physically, but just again, like in your soul, it's just like, Oh God, I feel, you know, and when I was doing stuff like sleeping around and everything, it's, you know, that you're conducting yourself in a way that's not again, conducive to love. It's it's self-destructive. Yeah. You know, the way to really it's escapism, but it's also, you know, kind of masochism. It's really hurting yourself. And you, at the moment, it feels like this almost like powerful thing and you want this attention, but the next day it's, it's like, you kind of sold yourself to get this feeling and yes. you have to with the repercussions. And it's, it's so uncomfortable that, you know, that's when I would use again, like I had many mornings where I would wake up horrifically hungover and I would just start drinking. Cause I was like, I can't, I can't sit with this feeling. It's too uncomfortable. I have to feel good again. Which is again the whole a whole other thing about addiction is just not wanting to feel bad. You don't want to feel uncomfortable. You don't want to feel pain emotionally or physically. Yeah. Um, so back to the the soul cord is that you know I I remember when I first got sober, I was in a, a group. It was actually for I was getting um uh, I was doing my practicum to be a therapist, and it was a consult group, and we we're passing around these. It was the end of the year, and we we're passing around these little like oracle cards, like you picked a card, and at that time, now I'm a tarot reader and I'm into all that. But at the time, I was like, okay, whatever. What what is this? And I pulled one, and it said, "It's time to take the first step back to yourself." And this was when I was just at the like the bottoming out of my use, and that did connect with me because that was the first time I thought that's what it feels like. I feel like my soul left my body and is like 10 miles down the road. And I often use that term in addiction is, is the long walk back to yourself because it's that point where you've basically gone as far as you can, your cord is, you know, pulling and you have to turn around and take that first terrifying, daunting task of, all right, well, I I got this far away. All I can do is go start that walk back, you know, And, and that's such a low place. And that's why I love working with people in addiction because you know, the, the biggest thing you need is just a little bit of reassurance that there is a way back and it is possible that you're not going to be lost forever out, disconnected from yourself, feeling terrible physically, mentally, emotionally, that it gets better. And, and often, you know, in increments, like it's not like you have to get all the way back in your body to feel good. It's like, you'll like, I remember the first day when I had gotten sober that I, it was like this light, I had that a little bit of like a flicker. I was like, Ooh, I feel my, I feel myself. I feel my soul. I feel that spark coming back. And then it would go away and I'd be depressed again, but you know, it's sort of a, it comes back gradually and in little moments as you work back to yourself. Yeah. And there's all these touchstones along the way too. I mean, as you were saying that I, when I, I was working at this printing graphic design company and the woman that ran the company um, when she fired me, she gave me, this is so crazy. It's such a San Francisco thing. She gave me the book, Woman Who Went Run With the Wolves, right? I mean, it must've been new at the time. I swear that my book must've just come out or something by what, Cl- Cl- ah, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, right? Which is such a classic now, but she gave me that book and I was like, okay, whatever. And I remember laying on my couch in my place in the lower height and reading it and reading the story about the red shoes. You know that story about the red shoes? It's this folk, um, it's like a folk story that um, is, I think, connected to the little match girl, and uh, which is, you know, this, she's this tattered soul. She's this tattered young girl who's like living on the streets and she gets these red shoes and and uh, she starts wearing them and it just, she can't, and it's so amazing at first. It's like, oh, I have these red shoes and, you know, they make me dance and they make me do this and they make me do that. And then, but then over time, they're, they're, um, the, the red shoes that become this compulsion for her and she can't get them off and she's just dancing as fast as she can. And they end up, it ends up like to her demise as the red shoes. And I remember that story and she like unpacked it about addiction and how it related. And I felt it was like just the touchstone of like, oh my God, I have to wake up. Right. And then like you said, this cord, like how do we find that thread back to ourselves? And um, I think that, yeah, it's, it's a, it's kind of this ongoing practice, right. Of doing that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then you, I don't know if you've done this, but I definitely, it's common to hear about in recovery that 
you know, once I got, because you said, you know, I did the same thing where I was like, am I really, do I really have a problem? Am I really an addict? Maybe I just have too much fun with alcohol. Maybe I'm just too, you know, I just get a little overzealous at times. But then I I was sure when I got sober, because I, you know, they call it whack-a-mole, right? In recovery, where it was like, then when I first got sober, my eating stuff came up and, you know, other, just different addictions. And I could find anything to get addicted to, you know, there, whether it's exercise or weight obsession or you know, obsession with a person or if they just, there's so many things. And I was like, okay, clearly there's something it's not, it wasn't the drinking. It wasn't the pills. It's something, it's this thing deep down in there. That's just looking to seek something out outside of me to get relief. And that's what needs to be addressed. It's always, it always comes down to that core thing where it's like, what is actually going on with me that I'm acting, that I'm engaging in these things to try and soothe something. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that can be, you know, that's challenging to face too. And, but, and for me, it's, you know, it just becomes a part of life where you just start to recognize like, oh, okay, I'm seeking this out. And, you know, cause even, um, you know, nowadays there's addiction comes in so many forms and it, it's even about, you know, validation is a huge addiction. And, and unfortunately now it's so there's a million different ways because of social media and otherwise to get this, you know, validation that people come addicted to. Right. So you pulled into anything that just, it because it kicks in the same thing, like those red shoes, like first it was alcohol, but then you find your other thing where you're like, oh, well, this feels really good. And I can't get enough of this. And it's like, oh, shoot, maybe this is becoming a problem too. <laughs> Never ends. Yeah. Never ends. Just like lock myself up. I can't engage, just, you know, become the Buddha and not engage in anything because anything I touch, I'm going to turn into a, a situation. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Wow. It's great to talk about, you know, the, it's great to talk about the addiction actually, but the recovery journey, right? Cause oh. what a process it is. It is. It is. So, so let's hear how you, as you moved, I mean, you're just in your twenties. So then you got sober early. So as you kind of found yourself and is that when your career started as, you know, as an artist, as an art therapist? Yeah. Um, well, as an artist, everything kind of went, just collapsed when I got sober. I mean, I really, because um, I just had to get sober. I just had to do the basic things of learning how to live life without drinking one day at a time. And I also had a lot of cleanup, internal cleanup to do. And so I think after about a year sober, I started really struggling with depression. You know, I was, I had to move a bunch of times and was trying to find my footing. I was trying to make money and, you know, just trying to get all the basics in order. And I, and my art life just, yeah, went underground. I didn't know how to do it and and felt very lost. And so I started, I started being, um, I started being more focused on, I did a lot of um, like visual diaries. I would do these collages and just find ways to express what was going on with me. I think I was doing a little bit of that before I got into recovery, but I sort of in the passageway from addiction to recovery, but it was just, it felt it felt very therapeutic. Like it wasn't about showing it. It wasn't about exhibiting. It wasn't about, you know, doing anything and out in the world. It was really for me. And, and that's what I was learning. I was learning to, to heal. I was learning to, to figure out how to do, to do the internal work. So then all of a sudden I thought, Hmm, maybe, maybe I want to learn about this as a, as a profession. So I started looking at art therapy and looking into different schools here in the Bay area, San Francisco Bay area. And, um, and I landed on this class this woman was doing, and it was called body, body portraits, I think, or something to that effect. And it was going through the body parts and exploring through movement and visual art and writing. And so I started doing this work with her and it was very, special and I, I her name was Helene um and I I was just learning about myself in this creative way and then she told me about the Tamalpa Institute which is this movement-based expressive arts therapy institute in um Marin County and she told me about it and it sparked my interest and so that was kind of where I decided to go and and I I arrived there and it's it's just this quite amazing spot um, because Anna Halperin, she's, she just passed recently. She was hundred when she died. It's this dancer choreographer and her daughter, Daria Halperin. And they created this school that was um, in just this gorgeous studio under the redwoods. And um, 
mm-hmm. uh, that since the 60s, they had been really creating dance around social justice and and around uh, just coming together, learning about the body, like all these poets and different people would come. And then it became an institute. So I went up there and really had a San Francisco experience, uh, really, you know, a California experience of finding my body. And and I met, like worked with this group of international students. And, and that was how I really entered into the field of expressive arts and and again, found my body. It was like all of a sudden I felt uh, dance was this excitement for me. And, and I started learning art from this more personal healing perspective. And, and then I just kept going. Like I really just kept going and, and decided early on um, that I would focus on recovery, that, that I was going to help other people in recovery. And so, so it all just came together. I mean, sure, of course, it was there was a lot of things along the way that contributed to uh, the process, but that's, that's how I landed in, in that, in that, and that was four years in recovery when I started doing that. So I already had, you know, some foundation. And I think that was good for me because I don't know if I could have done that if I had at the beginning, I think I was too raw. I was too, I would have been, I would have been too overwhelmed by it. I think at the beginning. So. Yeah, absolutely. Those first few years are, are tough. Yeah. No. And I always would tell people that that first year of recovery, that's what you're doing. You're in recovery for that first year, because I know I did this and people have a tendency that it's like, okay, well that's done. So I, what am I doing now? I need to be doing more. I need to be, you know, exercising or focusing on my work and, and it's fine to engage in those things. But, you know, I always remind people like, just that's your main occupation right now is getting sober. Cause it's such a huge thing. It's so giant to make that decision, to make that change in your life, to actually move from a life of using to a life of sobriety, that that in and of itself, like if you just focus on that, that's, that'll take most of your energy and it's going to need most of your energy. So it's important not to, you know, dilute it too much and to put it, you know, into too many other endeavors Yes, at first. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that especially these days, I mean, it's, there's so many distractions, right? It's, it's, there's so many distractions. It's hard also because we've been living in this online world. Um, but I, I really was able to immerse myself in, in it. You know, I was really able to just surround myself by recovering people. And, uh, and I think that was vital for me. I needed a whole new community. The old community was just, there wasn't, I didn't have the support. I mean, it was, I had, I knew a lot of artists and poets and, you know, there was a lot of people that I knew people that, open bars. I was an art curator at a bar when I got sober. And, uh, but I had to just, I had to separate myself from all that. And, and I think um, it took time, right? It takes time to, to groove into this new way of being. So. Yeah. And there's also that the aspect that, you know, the, that first year, even for a few years, you're really literally thawing out. I mean, you really just kind of, you know, ice off all of your emotions and, and you don't know how to, you, you've spent years numbing your emotions. So it's like, you're, you have these things coming back to life and it's like, what is this? This is a, it's, and I remember thinking like, I'm supposed to just sit here with this feeling like this feels terrible. I feel like there's a strong emotion and I can't run away from it. I have to just, it was the hardest thing to learn how to sit with it yes, and really feel it and not try to escape it and not try to find something to soothe it. Just and it's like, wow, this is uncomfortable and it's hurts. And it's, and, you know, for any of us who have trauma in our background or grief and loss, you know, sitting with those things and, and having to really look at it and acknowledge it is, is very painful. The first time you, you have to face it sober. And that also is a, having the capacity for that in those first few years is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And having tools, right. Having a lot of tools to do it. And, and I often tell people in my work because I work with a lot of people who have very sensitive nervous systems, just like I do. And, and that we have to do it little bits at a time. And and I think that, I don't know. Also, I feel like so much has evolved in therapy and somatics and um, recovery over time. You know, it just felt like the wilderness a little bit at that time. And, And it wasn't, that long ago, but in some ways, I mean, it was 20, 20, almost 29 years ago. I mean, it was a different world. And, um, but I think now there's just so many resources there's so many tools or so much experience that people have, they can share. And, and I also feel like part of even doing the work that I do is supporting other creative people, because I didn't feel like I had that 
I didn't have people around me that necessarily could say, Hey, welcome artist in recovery. Like, you know, this is, uh, this is going to be its own journey and, and here's some ways to handle it. And here's some ways to organize around it. Cause I felt, felt like there was no, there just, yeah, there were, there were no role models at the time that I knew of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful that you found your way towards that community and started finding all these different outlets that really resonated with you and helped you in your healing process and reconnecting with your body. And then how, as I imagine that like, once you kind of immerse yourself in that, that's, that's kind of what created the impetus to be like, I want to do this. I want to help people the way that these people are helping me, which again, is a lot of part of the recovery journey is I want to use this to aid others who are in, you know, have to walk this same path and have these same struggles. So when, what were your first steps towards like your own work? You know, once you moved, I guess, guessing like your late twenties into your thirties, we were like, I'm want to make a career of this. I want, I have, I'm an artist, I'm talented. I have things to offer. I want to start doing that. Yeah. I, I through the Institute, they, they had you do a lot of practice Right. And just like any training program, like I know you're sure you did with your therapy program, too. And so we started doing practice sessions with with people. So I started doing one on one um, with some of the students, actually, at the because then first you're a student and then you come in and support the students that are going through the training. So I started doing some practice sessions, which I really loved right away. Oh, I like this. I like doing this one on one work with people. Um, And then I um, had to do a project. And so my project was was. um, doing it was called mask what was it called exactly something about i don't remember the exact title but it was a surrounding mask as a um, metaphor for for addiction and then the idea of the unmask or what's underneath the mask as the metaphor for recovery um, which i still play with sometimes because i love that concept but it, so i did a workshop and i got people to come and and um and we just I, offered an expressive arts experience. And I think, God, I was, was just at the end of my training. So it was probably close to 30 at the time. And then I went in and got a master's in psychology. So I kind of kept going and, and through that, I just, I just started offering things. I was just really like, I'm just going to do this. I'm excited about this. I want to share this with people. So I kept working with people in recovery and I started doing um, little stints at treatment centers. I would go in and I would offer you know, a, a series of workshops or a class. And um, so I yeah, started doing that really um, right at the beginning and just kept going. It kept going because it felt like this works. And I would post things on Craigslist because that was just starting. And I would post flyers around the city and I would have people come. They would come and and uh, join me. And, and I had a recovery network. So I also, also would find ways to, to, you know, let people in my network know. And, um, and it just started growing. It just started growing from there. And I had to do things, still had to do a lot of day jobs. Um, so I found a lot of different things I could do to, to kind of get going, get, get, you know, stay afloat while I built my work, my built my practice. And, uh, so that's, yeah, that's kind of what happened. And it was, uh, it was hard in a lot of ways, right? You know, it's hard because there was no map for it. it just, there really wasn't a map, but um, but I just kept following my nose and and just seeing what opportunities came. And I also really, um, I don't know, I just had so much passion for it. I mean, I still do. You know, I had a lot of passion for it. And my my husband, because I married somebody, I, I had a long, you know, twelve year relationship with someone in recovery, and he was so supportive. And he was a jazz musician and. Uh, he that was his like love his jazz um and he just he just also helped me and and he was a meditator and so we started doing these retreats yearly retreats for people in recovery in the santa cruz mountains oh yeah where you're from yeah and so that started happening so i built a you know a niche and people started knowing that that was something that i was doing and uh that's so great. And it's so in- inspiring and encouraging to hear because sometimes that's the way things get, I mean, that's always how the way things get started. You just do it. Cause I love how you said like, I wanted to do it. So I just did it. You know, um, I know I'm first at this place professionally where, you know, I'm, I'm a licensed therapist. So I obviously do that, but there's so many other little things. Like I'd love to do more recovery and healing work and just little things that are kind of offshoots, but it's, I'm kind of stuck in that. Like, well, where do you start? Because I have, you know, sort of my base work 
to rely on. But sometimes it's when you're in that place where you just have to do it and just start that it just kind of takes on a life of its own. And these things that, you know, when it's our soul's calling, when it's something that we truly just feel a yearning to do, it tends to work out and it'll come together. And it sounds like that's what happened for you because you're offering something that people want and are needing. And that's always going to work out and come around. Yeah. And and I mean, I think I have a strong drive, which sometimes is good. And sometimes it's not great for me because I can push myself hard. And I, you know, maybe that's, it's also the addiction at play at times. Like I I have to temper my workaholism uh, because I've always, it's like, I've always done a lot. I've always pushed hard and um, except for, I mean, there's been times where I've gone through depression and I've felt lost. And so I've had some periods of that, but generally um, yeah, I've just been, I've got like, I go for it and I've learned how to also um, be a businesswoman. I really had to learn how to be a businesswoman and, and just, mm-hmm. there was not tools for that necessarily where I went to school. <laughs> they, were, they weren't really showing you how to market yourself. So I had to kind of, I had to fly by the seat of my pants and, and really get like the ins and outs of like, how do you do this? And I'm still learning. I feel like I'm still learning. Yeah. Well, it's an ever evolving thing. I mean, once you kind of become, you know, a business owner, a business woman, a business person, and you're out there creating this, whatever you want to call it, your, your broader vision, your broader empire. I mean, that's essentially what it becomes because you're overseeing all these beautiful little, it's like this garden and empire is basically this garden of things that you've planted and are now growing, but you have to tend to it. And it's never finished. Just like art, it's art. It's never finished. It's always, there's always more to grow, which is the beautiful thing about creativity is that it, there's there's no like ceiling to it you can always because you can make a new little you know shift or change in one offering and it's a whole nother plant and expression so <laughs> yeah okay, it's like there things to learn <laughs> and, and I imagine like as you gain like you know because you I w- would love for you to talk about you've also gone into film and you've made these yeah. amazing incredible documentaries well one was about you know sort of more of a personal expression like personal art piece about your your personal experience with grief but then you just created um the creative high which is a documentary which is just what we're talking about which is you know how people move from addiction and despair into okay if i have this energy how do i channel it towards something greater and expressive and moving that into beautiful creative performance and art and all of that so i just i can't wait to see that documentary i haven't got to see it yet but can you can you tell us about that like how did you move into film and what is it like to be able to kind of, cause it's a real birth when you create something like that, like whether it's a book or a movie, a documentary or anything, it's like, it, that's a lot of work. You got to first figure out the idea, have like this, the seedling and then it gestates and then you give birth to it. And it's a whole thing. <laughs> so the whole thing, it's a whole thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I think you know, how the process started is that my husband, Eddie, who I was with for 12 years, that he, he um, was diagnosed with lung cancer because two years into our marriage, because we had been together for eight years and it was a very, we had a very passionate, intense, complicated relationship. And so we got married after eight years to being together. He was older than I was. He had kids, um, a couple of kids. And, um, so he got diagnosed with lung cancer and then we went into two year process of treatment and then he eventually passed away. Um, and then when that happened, obviously it was like a whole other, like, okay, now what, you know, it was, it was kind of this whole other chapter of my recovery, my life uh, ended and I had to figure out how to move into the next very bizarre chapter um, of going through grief. And and that was also another waking up because I, I realized, okay, number one, um, I have to start over. I had to leave the house we were living in. There was so many things that had to, had to um, change. And I felt like I had been giving so much. Like I had his kids lived with us half time. And, you know, so I had these stepkids I had, was dealing with his illness. I was doing so much with my work. And I also have this job where I was running this art program as a day job, which was wonderful, but in connection to my practice. And I was just giving and giving and giving. And I didn't feel like I had enough for my own creative life, really. I mean, it was, I felt like I'm mentoring, but I'm not I'm not creating. And I was actually doing tango dance at the time, which was a place where I was, I was, um, I had nine, a nine year tango life career. And I'd started that with Eddie. Um, and so I just decided that I needed to 
I was starting to write poetry. I was, I'd already always written some poetry, but I was writing poetry about the loss and the grief and the process. And then um, I wanted to create a performance. And so I decided it was actually five years after about four or five years after Eddie passed away that I, I started moving into this performance process. And I did this whole ritual called performance ritual um, because it was more, wasn't like I'm staging this performance. It was really like, I'm doing something very internal and I'm going to have an audience of witnesses. So I hired a amazing choreographer and a dancer, uh, Travis um, from the Bay area and Erica. And so they came and helped me craft this performance which was like really reclaiming my own creative life and doing the work that I do with others. How do we heal through art? So I did this performance and then I decided to document it and make it into a short documentary called when, when the fall comes. And so I created this and it was such a powerful experience. It was so powerful. And, um, not only was reclaiming my creative life, it was very healing for my grief journey. And I had all these collaborators. I had all these people holding me, supporting me, inspiring me. And I felt like I dove back into my art kind of full force. And so that was the beginning, I think, of where I am now, which I've been making documentary now for, that was since 2014. So, right, it's been like, I don't know, nine years or something. I'm on the math, math. Like eight years. Eight years. Um, and I and I wasn't going to make another film until I had this coach. This he was a very interesting guy, and he was like, "You have another film in you. You have another film in you. You're a filmmaker." And I'm like, well, "Okay." And he just wouldn't stop. Like he was just. He's like, "I don't know. I know you're a therapist, but I don't know. I think it's sucking the life out of you, and you got to do more film." And Oh. Even though making films kind of suck the life out of you in a whole different way, actually. <laughs> it's so intense. Um, and he, he um, I don't even, he, he actually helped me start this film. And and then he kind of vanished. And and then I was like, wait a minute. Um, so uh, just a little like messenger to, come to kind of push you. Sometimes that'll happen in life. Like that little bird that's like, you got to do this. Exactly. <laughs> he was, he was, and he was, he was very motivating and he was very encouraging. He was so supportive of me. He's, he just really boosted me in so many ways. And, um, and so it, it took a while because he's like, what's the topic of your next film? What's, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, like, hello, <laughs> what have I been doing for the past, you know, 15 years? It's like, yeah, I guess it's going to be art and recovery, you know? And it just was such a, it was such a no brainer when I finally, when I finally dawned on me. So, yeah. So it was this whole idea, like, I'm going to set out, I'm going to talk to artists. I'm going to talk to artists who you know, faced addiction, who, who are in recovery, and I'm going to talk to them about the creative process. And I'm going to talk to them about this idea of like, how do we, how do we like heal and, you know, through art and, and does art heal us in recovery? You know, I just wanted to ask them all those questions and learn about their creative process. And so that's what I did. I like, I just, just almost naively again, back to like, (laughs) I feel like I set out with like this, you know, really bright eyed, like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to do this in two years and it'll be done. And, and it's six years later. Oh, wow. Six years later. Yeah. It's finally coming into the world. I didn't know if it would ever happen. That's a long pregnancy. Six years. (laughs) Oh my, that's exactly what I've termed it so many times. Like this baby is so (laughs) big. I feel like it's never going to drop and it's, is it going to kill me or am I going to birth this? Right. And so it finally happened and uh, it's been, it's been, I mean, God, it's been its own journey. I mean, I could, there's so many things that have happened during this process. I can imagine. Well, it truly is. I mean, it's, it's magic that's happening when people create and are, and that's what I find so incredible about a a book or a movie where it's, it's something that it takes so much of people. It's like this, it's just this labor of love and energy and all these things. And then, but then once it's done, it's there. I think that every time I watch a movie, I think they spent years on this, but this movie is now 50 years old, but it's for, for all the effort they put into it. Now it, it, for all of time is there for people to enjoy, to get inspiration messages, just so much from. So it's like this incredible force. Once you put it out there, it's like, 
you know, as much as it takes to put into it, it's worth it, right? Because then it's it's the gift that keeps giving. It just keeps continuously being an offering. And that's, you know, I dream of doing, creating something, whether it's a book or a film, because it, you know, it's it's so amazing to offer that, to put that out into the world, especially something like this, because it's so important for people to, to know that there is life beyond addiction. And that just because you were addicted doesn't mean that you're not, you don't have that, that, your own amazing gift and talent and abilities, right. you know, cause I think it's common for people to get sober and think, well, you know, can I still do this? Do I still have it? Do I still have these gifts? And I, you know, you hear that a lot about musicians or performers or anybody who, you know, they, their livelihood was based on using and then they get sober and it's like, am I going to dry up? Is there anything left, you know, for me to offer? So yeah. I, it's just, I can't wait. I can't wait to watch it and experience that and hear those stories. Mm, I'm so excited for you to see it. And I am, you know, we're, we're gearing up to our premiere next, um, next Sunday. Next yeah. Sunday. And uh, it's the first time that I'll see it on the big screen. So, I mean, that's the other thing is it's just been virtual the whole time. We've done a few private screenings like to donors and um, to, to our audience that have been following us for so many years. But the fact that we have this in person, like especially with everything we've been through <laughs> this last couple of years with COVID. I mean, when we finished the film through COVID, I mean, I, I have an amazing producer, uh, Diane Griffin, who's really been a collaborator. I always want to name her because, I mean, we're really in it together. And she's she has 25 years in plus in the business of documentary filmmaking. And, um, you know, I think for both of us and, and our editor, Kirk, and, and the artists, because there's nine different artists and five of them are going to come in person to the screening. I mean, the fact like that stuck with us for all this time, you know, I mean, here I am again. Um, can we come film you? Or, hey, we have another question. Or, I mean, they, how persist, how um, patient they've been with it's it's like this it's something coming to fruition and now it just exists in the world and it's going to have of its own yeah yeah that I, I how remarkable and you know just such strong respect and you know credit to you for all that you put into this because again it's just so invaluable to be to have this resource out there okay so here's the poster Oh, gorgeous. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, for those of us who are, those who are listening, it's a picture of someone. Is this, is this a dance performance? Is this one on stage? What's happening here? Yeah. It's one of our artists and he did a really incredible piece that involved water and powder and paint. And he went through this kind of four stage process. And so we, we, that's, Part of the documentary is kind of seeing him in action. And this um, photograph was taken by Gareth Gooch, who's a really, he's just a wonderful uh, Bay Area photographer. And he, he he's really involved in the drag and performance community and the queer community. And he does a lot of, he does a lot of uh, shoots. And so he shot this for us. And he's also going to be there at our premiere helping us with photographing. So Anyhow, there's there's so many um, artists that have been involved, you know, for musicians um, in in the film. I mean, actually, we're telling their stories, but there's so many incredible artists that have been involved just in the making of it, too. Right. And a part of the process over time. And a lot of the artists on our team are in recovery as well. And um, so it's a. it's anyways, it's been a lot of when it hasn't been grueling, it's been a lot of fun. And so we're so excited to birth that and to bring it out into the world. Now the fun part starts. This is the fun part when you get to actually bring it out. And then when, you, when you're watching it next Sunday for the first time on the big screen, it's like you're watching your baby up there ready to come into life doing their thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And yeah, so so that's that's where that's what today is, you know. That's is, what, it is. what a great time to be in. It's always nice to be on this side of things where you're you're through six years, Adriana. That's that's remarkable. But I'm so inspired by that. That's so encouraging that I, I'm I as many addicts, past addicts, recovered addicts, I struggle with patience, right? So the idea of I usually I'm like, oh, I want to make a movie. I wonder if I can be done in you know six months. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's the thing is the persistence is, I mean, I think that's, 
what I learned, and I had a lot of people helping me to to stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, because it's really easy to bail or feel like, is it is this really worth it? And and then you don't know until you're there. And a lot of people don't finish their projects. They don't have enough funding or they don't have the energy or, you know, it's sometimes you can feel like, does this even, does this even matter anymore? But um, luckily, we were able to stay the course and get here. And And I do think, like you're saying, it's it's good to know that, yeah, it's, it takes time. It really takes time to do something worthwhile. And so having built in like a lot of what I do also kind of my coaching work and some of the courses I teach is helping people like have rituals, have um, structure, have support for doing projects over time, you know, because our doubt, our fear, our resistance, even external factors, right, can really stop us. So I um I had to get a lot of that and learn a lot of that through through this process for myself. So yeah. I'm sure. And you did it. And now you have even more to, you know, work from to help people who are in that process of, you know, that the long drawn out creative process that can get stalled out, that people can get burnt out. And you can be there to kind of help stoke those flames for them and help them to keep remembering that there is there is a end point. There is a finalization, which you've reached. So, so much congratulations to you. And we're also excited to, to watch it and take part in it. So how can people find your, your first film and now this one, and how can they find you? Yeah. So, so it's easy to find me at adrianamarchion.com. I'm also on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, mostly those are the most them, the platforms I'm on the most, but adrianamarchion.com and really can find everything there. If you go to my, um, if you go to my film and projects page and I'll double check that too, make sure it's taking you to the right link there too, um, that it takes you to the films, uh, when the fall comes, my first film about grief and the arts. And then the creative high is also, um, at the creative high.com. So when the fall comes.com is my first film. And then thecreativehigh.com. And if people want to see the film, uh, it's going to be, at San Francisco Indie Fest. I'm not sure when this is coming out, when your podcast is coming out. Is it before or afterwards? <laughs> uh, it'll be coming out in two weeks. Okay. So, so then it might be, might be the tail end. They might still be able to see it online because it's going to be accessible from the 3rd through the 13th through San Francisco Indie Fest. And you can find, again, all that info through our website on the, sc- on the schedule page. Um, so you can watch it online and the premiere is next Sunday. So by the time this comes out, that will have passed. Well, but actually, you know what? I'm sure my next guest will, I'll switch. I'll release yours next week. So that it's before the premiere. So, okay. All right. Yeah. So yeah. come to the premiere. We've got more tickets, uh, San Francisco Roxy on February 6th or watch online until the 13th. And after that, I mean, we're going to do all sorts of, we're going to take the film on tour, different places around the country. We're going to have different screenings. Um, there'll be virtual screenings. There'll be, there'll be all sorts of different ways for people to connect over time to the film. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. So that's the film. And then do you share your website where people yep. can just yep. learn about you? We got that done. Adrianamarchion.com. So that's... Uh, I'll have that in the show notes as well. So people can just go ahead and click on all these links. We'll be able to have that and they can see all the incredible magic that you've produced in your amazing work. So thank you so much, Adriana, for what you do. Thank you for being a guest on the show. So happy to be connected with you. And I can't wait to see you in person next Sunday for the premiere. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to connect with you too. And I look forward to continued conversations. Yes, absolutely. All right, Adriana, have a wonderful day. Take care. You too. That wraps up our beautiful conversation with our wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Waken podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and come back for more. If anything you heard resonates, leave a review or send me an email at Whitney at womenwaken.com and check out the website, womenwaken.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day and don't forget to let your light shine and keep an eye out for your special gifts and magic.